All right, all right, that's good. Huh. Like that? Yeah, but keep your thumb off the line, because if you get a strike, it's going to slice it right open. You know what happens then? What? Sharks will smell the blood, and they'll rip this boat apart. No, they won't. Yeah, they will. Dad, will they? Yes, sir. Shut up. You know, I've seen a school of sharks tear a boat to pieces like it was made of cardboard because some kid threw a Band-Aid in the water. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, he did. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you didn't. Sometimes the only way to keep them off is to throw the kid directly in the ocean to distract them. Shut up. Sharks don't even swim in schools. Huh? Sharks? He says sharks don't swim in schools. Smart kid. Yeah, he is. A really smart kid is exactly the kind of quality meal a humongous school of sharks is looking for when they're circling a boat. Uncle Lee, shut up. Hey, you got a strike! Strike, 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 strike! He's huh? up on I got it! We got to Drive the boat! Mind your business! You got to get the hook in him. We're well, fine! Come shut on, up! You mind your business! Great wife. It's got to be a great wife. It's got to be a great wife, Patty. Maybe a barracuda. Who knows? It's not a shark. Come on, pull it up! It's not a shark! Just stop talking! Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. And I know I say this pretty much every time I'm up here talking to you, but it is so good uh, to be worshiping with you right now. It was also good to have last week, a spring break week. I hope a lot of you got to uh, leave town. Maybe you went somewhere warm. Maybe you went to the mountains to ski and you didn't want it to be warm. Wherever you were last week, I hope that was great. And it really is so good to be worshiping together again right now. As we get started, let's read this verse together from the Old Testament book of Job. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, that clip we just watched is from a movie called Manchester by the Sea. And I heard somebody say one time, if you're going to experience any joy in this life, it's going to be experienced right alongside suffering. And to me, that clip kind of shows how this works out. Lee Chandler is uh, from a small fishing village in the Northeast. He works on a fishing boat with his brother, Joe. And life is really pretty good until tragedy strikes. Uh, there's a house fire, and Lee Chandler's uh, daughters are in an upstairs bedroom, and they're not able to escape, and they die in the fire. And the the horror, the grief, the loss from that event just becomes overwhelming. Uh, it costs Lee his marriage to his wife, Randy, and at one point he determines the only possible way forward is a geographic solution. So he moves away from home, hoping to leave his troubles in the rearview mirror. Several years pass, and he gets a phone call. His brother Joe has died. And so the scene we just watched is a flashback. Uh, Lee Chandler is driving back home after the death of his brother, but his mind is wandering. 
And one of the places it wanders to are good memories, memories of joy, memories of life. But there are other memories going through his mind as well. Memories of shame, memories of hopelessness, memories of death. And it's interesting to me, the, the movie makers decide as he's driving back home, let's focus in on a couple of churches that he's driving by. And, and I wonder if maybe uh, this passage from Job is going through his mind. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Judging from his facial expressions, I don't think Lee Chandler is saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, as he drives back home after the death of his brother. I wonder if maybe the question going through his mind is the question uh, that is the title of our message today. Does God send suffering for our sin? Yeah, I, I'm not going to wait till the end of the message to answer that question for you. I'll just tell you right now, the answer is no. The answer is no. But let's spend a little bit of time talking about why some people have this understanding of God, this view of God, that God sends suffering for our sin. You remember last Sunday, Selection Sunday, we were all so excited. Uh, Iowa, Iowa State, and Drake had their women's teams and their men's teams make the tournament, and they were you know, marching down the road to the Final Four, and then the game started and only one team remains. Uh, help us, Iowa women, you're our only hope. Anyway, when I was a little boy, sports fan, and my team would lose in March Madness, I would lie in bed at night, and, and the thoughts going through my head were, I wonder what sin God is punishing me for that my favorite team lost. <laughs> was it because I was picking on somebody at school? Was it because I said something mean to my brother? Was it because I lied to my parents? And I said, of course I ate the vegetables, when really when they weren't looking, I flushed them down the toilet. What sin is God punishing me for that my favorite sports team loses a game? And, and there's something about that mindset when little kids have it, it's kind of cute. And then we grow up, and the questions that keep us up at night are no longer cute. They carry a lot more weight. Is the reason I lost my job because God's punishing me because I don't go to church enough? Is the reason I got this health scare that has me in the hospital? Is God punishing me because I don't read the Bible enough? If I wasn't so angry and stubborn and self-centered and manipulative, would I be able to have a you know, healthy relationship and maintain that so I wouldn't be so alone all the time? Is God punishing me for my sins? Does God send suffering for our sin? Where does this idea come from? How do people get to a kind of a place where they wonder about this, they ask this? What if one of the places it comes from is scripture? Our goal this year is to read through the whole Holy Bible together as a congregation, Genesis to Revelation. You remember how Genesis begins? The account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. God creates everything, including human beings. And God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. It's called paradise. And then tragedy strikes. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And after eating the forbidden fruit, after doing what God has asked them not to do, after they sin, God shows up. And God says there's going to be some consequences for the sin. Uh, women, good luck with that childbirth thing. Men, all of your life is going to be a struggle at home, at work. You're, you'll survive by the sweat of your brow. From dust you came to dust you will return. And oh, by the way, God says, I'm kicking you out of the garden. It seems pretty obvious after you read through just the first three chapters of the Bible that God sends suffering for our sin. Uh, this week, our Bible readings in the Old Testament, as we're reading through the whole Holy Bible together, we're in the book of Judges. 
And one of the things that I hope you picked up on as you're reading through the book of Judges is there is this pattern, this cycle that keeps repeating itself. Chapter after chapter, generation after generation, it shows up pretty clearly in Judges chapter 6. Read verse 1 with me. It's on the screen. Read it out loud. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Again, seems pretty obvious to the writer of the book of Judges. God sends us suffering for our sin. The, the, the people do evil in the Lord's sight. They sin, so God hands them over to the enemy, and the enemy oppresses them. They suffer at the hands of the enemy for seven years. Sometimes it's the Midianites, sometimes it's the Philistines. But one of the other parts of this pattern, this cycle that shows up in Judges is sometime in the middle of their suffering, the people eventually cry out to God for help. And God hears the cry, and God sends a rescuer. God sends a deliverer to save God's people. When I was a little boy, lying in bed at my night, wondering, lying in bed at night, wondering why God is punishing my favorite team, you know, causing them to lose, I shared a room with my two brothers. And when uh, the before lights went out, Dad would read to us from a giant, you know, picture children's Bible. And I remember going through this part of the story after the Exodus, but before King David, before King Solomon, during this interesting period of time that we read about in the Judges. I remember reading about Gideon. Gideon is the hero who shows up in Judges chapter 6. I remember reading about Samson and the way Samson would rescue and deliver God's people, how God used him to do that. And I remember noticing this pattern even as a little boy. I remember asking Dad, why don't the people of Israel get it? It seems pretty obvious to me. Here's the formula. You do what God asks you to do and life's going to go pretty well for you. You don't do what God asks you to do, and life's not going to go well for you. It's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. But of course, life is not simple, is it? And very rarely does life provide the clarity that we long for. A couple years later, as I'm growing up, I am now in middle school in the church where uh, we worshiped at a middle school youth group led by volunteers in the church. And one Sunday morning, one of those volunteers, uh, they were getting ready to go to church. They went out to pull the car out of the garage. They didn't know their two-year-old followed them. And they ended up backing over their son, and he died. And think of the sorrow. Think of the guilt. Think of the overwhelming suffering that they experienced as good people serving God out of the goodness of their heart and horrible thing happened. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the formula was if we do what God wants us to do, bad things won't happen. But the longer we live, the older we get, these are the questions that start to pop up. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the opposite is just as frustrating. Why do all these people that we would put in the category of bad, why do they seem to be getting away with it? Eat, drink, and be married. Just do whatever you want. No consequences. And, and we're not the first generation to have these kinds of questions and to wrestle with these kinds of questions. As you read through the whole Holy Bible, you will see in every generation these questions pop up. E even in the greatest people of faith that we read about, in the, the prophet Jeremiah has these questions. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? Think of the suffering that you've experienced in your own life. 
Think of the people close to you, family members and friends who've gone through seasons of just awful suffering. One of the things the experience of suffering does, there's something about the way we're wired. We want to make sense of the suffering. In this movie, Manchester by the Sea, Lee Chandler and his wife Randy experienced tremendous suffering after that house fire and the, the death of their daughters. The scene that I'm going to show you next is difficult to watch. Uh, it, it's Lee Chandler's confession. Because Lee Chandler knows it was his sin that led to the fire. And, and the suffering that he is experiencing is a result of his sin. Take a look. Well, we were partying pretty hard. And there was beer. And someone was passing around a joint and there was cocaine. Cocaine? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Uh, anyway, our bedroom is in the downstairs and the kids sleep upstairs. So Randy makes everyone leave around 2 o'clock. At 3 a.m. And then she goes back to bed. So I go upstairs to check on the kids, and it's freezing upstairs. But I can't use the central heat because it dries out Randy's sinuses and gives her really bad headaches. So I go downstairs and I put a fire in the fireplace and sit down and watch TV because there's no more beer. I'm still jumping around like a Jack Rabbit, so put a couple fire logs in the fire and I just to warm up the house while I was gone. And then I, I go on the mini mop, but I'm too wasted and I don't want to drive. So I walk, it's about 20 minutes each way, I'm about halfway there. Uh, I can't remember if I put a screen on the fireplace. But I figure it's okay. So I just keep going to the store. And uh, that's it. Log must have rolled out onto the floor. And the fireman said they pulled Randy out. She had passed out downstairs. And, uh, and then the furnace blew and they couldn't go back in again. And that's all I remember. Kaylee, that's all for now. We'll, we'll call you if anything else comes up we want to ask you about. Assuming the forensics bear you out, which I'm assuming they will. So what? That's it? Look, Lee, you made a horrible mistake, like a million other people did last night. I'm not going to crucify you. Interesting choice of words at the end of that scene. I wonder why the screenwriter chose to have the police officer use that phrase. We're not going to crucify you. 
as the scene plays out, it's pretty clear Lee Chandler thinks he deserves to be crucified. He deserves to be punished for his sin. What kind of a father does this? What kind of father is so irresponsible and immature that he would allow something like that to happen on his watch? A couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, student ministry night here at Hope, uh, it was question and answer night for our Power Life and Ignition students, middle school and high school students. And so uh, the students got to ask whatever question they uh, were wrestling with, and the, some of the pastors and some of the leaders of the church would try to answer those questions. Our students are asking really good, really important questions. One of the questions that was asked was, what's the worst sin to commit? What's the worst sin to commit? In, I've been in ministry close to three decades now, and part of what I notice, it seems to me most people believe the worst sin I could commit is the sin I'm not tempted to commit. Let me say that again. I, th I think if we could be honest with ourselves, we would say the worst sin anyone could commit is the sin I'm not tempted to commit. I don't know what's going through your mind as you're watching that scene that, that we just watched as a father is confessing to this use of drugs and alcohol on the night that there's a fire in his house that kills his children. Some of you are not tempted by drugs or alcohol. You're not tempted uh, to party all night long in the basement with your buddies. And so you watch that scene and there's some righteous indignation that rises up inside you. And no, he shouldn't be crucified for what he has done, but there should be severe consequences for that kind of behavior. Others of you watch that scene and you think there, but for the grace of God go I. Do you ever wonder what Jesus thinks about this kind of stuff? There's a lot of suffering in Jesus' day. Uh, life expectancy in Jesus' day was about half what it is today in our day and age. People were dying young. You'd get an illness, you'd get a disease, and more often than not, it was going to take your life. There was a lot of violence in Jesus' day that led to death, including violence that happened while people were worshiping. Did you notice that's how our Bible reading in Luke 13 begins? About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. This is the kind of thing that happens in our day and age, too, far too frequently. People are gathered for worship in a Jewish synagogue or an Islamic mosque or a Christian church, and violence breaks out, and people are hurt, and there is suffering. And, and when this happens, we're shocked, we're outraged, we can't believe it, we're filled with grief and sorrow. It's really interesting to me, Jesus' initial response to this. It's not shock and outrage. Jesus' initial response, finding out that the government had killed some people while they were worshiping, Jesus' initial response is theology. That's what he says in verse 2. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Is that why they suffered? This is, Jesus is asking us, who do you think God is? Who do you believe God to be? How does God deal with people? How does God deal with sinners? Part of what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, I reminded us as we're reading through the Gospels, a big part of what we see Jesus doing is correcting bad theology. 
these bad ideas that have developed because people have misinterpreted the scriptures. And as a result, they misunderstand God. If you had asked the religious leaders in Jesus' day, does God send suffering for our sin? They all would have said, yeah, absolutely. Just look at the scripture. I hope you notice here in Luke 13, Jesus is saying something different. These people who are killed by Pilate in the temple, are they worse sinners than everybody else Jesus asks? Is that why they suffered? And then Jesus answers his own question in verse 3. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Let's start with just these first three words. Does God send suffering for our sin? And Jesus answers it by saying, not at all. You think when something bad happens in your life, it's God punishing you for your sin. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they walk by a man who has been blind from birth. And the question the disciples have for Jesus is, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he's born blind. Because the theology of Jesus' day says if you are sick, if you have an illness, that is a sign that God's punishing you for your sin or for the sin of your parents. If you are poor, it's a sign God's punishing you for your sin or for the sins of your parents. And if you're healthy and wealthy, that's a sign that God is blessing your life. That's a sign that God is rewarding you for righteous living, for good behavior. The people in Jesus' day, if you would have read through that passage in Job that we looked at at the beginning of the message, they would have added a little bit to it. God gives when we are good, and God takes away when we are bad. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, not at all. That's not how this works. That's not who God is, and that's not what God does. And this isn't the only place Jesus is trying to help us understand this different way of thinking about who God is. In the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus gives this, you know, radical, countercultural teaching, he says things like, love your enemies, and it confuses all the people listening to him. They're like, God doesn't even love our enemies. How are we going to love our enemies? You remember what Jesus says to them? You do understand that God sends his sunlight on the evil and the good, that God sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Can you imagine what our weather patterns would be like if that's not how it worked? I mean... We never have to go anywhere for spring break at our house because on our lot where we live, the Pastor Scott's family, it's 72 and sunny day after day after day after day. Our neighbors, they go to the Methodist church, woo, different story. Does God send suffering? Jesus actually says, not only does God not send suffering for our sin, God actually sends good things like sunlight and rain to sinners. Does God send suffering for our sin? Not at all, Jesus says. Now let's look at the rest of the verse. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. When we talk about repentance, often what we kind of think about is this idea of acknowledging our sin, confessing our sin. I did it. What I did was not good. It hurt me. It hurt people that I love. I am sorry. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, please help me not do that again. And certainly that's a, it's a big part of what repentance is all about. But again, as you, as you read through the Bible, part of what you will see is the biblical writer's understanding of repentance. It begins with changing our mind, changing the way we think. And so a big part of what Jesus is doing in this text in Luke chapter 13 Jesus is helping us repent. 
Jesus is helping us think differently about who God is and what God does. A couple of weeks ago, I was telling you, uh, my buddy Dan was here and we were watching all the movies like we try to do every year. I met Dan in 1998. It was a couple of years after his wife, Signe, had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. Uh, they couldn't operate, they couldn't get the tumor out, but there was all kinds of treatments that she was able to do and new technology, just crazy stuff that uh, was making sure that tumor was not growing. And so she lived with that tumor for close to 15 years. And uh, she went back to grad school, she uh, got, earned her master's degree, became a counselor. And her specialty was grief and loss. Until her death in 2009, Signe devoted her life to talking with people and helping people who were trying to make sense of their suffering. And, and Signe would always say the best book that she'd ever read on grief and loss and suffering and what does faith have to do with this is a book called A Grace Disguised, written by a man named Jerry Sitzer. The subtitle is How the Soul Grows Through Loss. One of the things Jerry Sitzer does in the book, it, he introduced me to this phrase, undeserved suffering. It's been a really helpful concept for me over the years. I hope it'll be helpful to you. Undeserved suffering. When we talk about grace, when we talk about the power of God that forgives us of our sins, the power of God that changes us, helps us grow and mature in our faith, the power of God that opens the door of heaven to all of us, when we talk about grace, we always say grace is undeserved. There's nothing we can do to earn grace. Grace is not a reward that God gives us for good behavior. And what Sitzer does in the book is helps us get to a similar kind of understanding when it comes to suffering. If grace is not a reward that God gives us for good behavior, perhaps suffering is not punishment that God gives us for bad behavior. So he talks about undeserved suffering. Is there deserved suffering? I suppose. If I get in a car after worship, I say, I'm going to go for a Sunday drive, but today I'm going to set the cruise at 100. And I don't care if there's ice on the road. I don't care what the traffic patterns are. I don't care if there's a curve and the sign says 35. I'm just going to keep going 100. And, and if I do that and I get in an accident and, and I get hurt and I suffer as a result of that, that's not God sending suffering for my sin. That's suffering that I've brought upon myself. And so we do, we do see that kind of suffering in this world. But most of the suffering that raises questions in our lives, questions about who God is, it's the result of undeserved suffering. The, the people in Luke 13 who are killed in the temple, the people Jesus talks about in Luke 13 who die when a tower falls on them, they did not deserve to suffer in that way. And so Jesus is calling us to repent, to repent, to repent. What if we could start asking different questions? What if we could start thinking differently about God? Instead of thinking God sends us suffering for our sins, what if we could change the way we think? When we look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see a really important truth. God doesn't send us suffering for our sin. God sends us Jesus for our sin, which is really good news. But let's talk for just a minute about why this is such good news. Go back to Job. Job says, I was naked when I was born. I'll be naked when I die. Every day in between, I'm going to praise the name of the Lord. I'm going to trust in the goodness of God. I'm going to hold on to my faith. Make no mistake about it, there's nothing easy about holding on to your faith in the face of suffering. It wasn't easy for Job. 
It's a pretty long book, the book of Job. And most of the book are, are questions that Job has for God doubts that pop up in, in Job's heart and mind because of the suffering that he's going through. One of the things, again, that I hope you notice as you're reading through the Bible with us this year, the biblical writers don't seem to be afraid of questions and doubts. They, they don't seem to view questions and doubts as a, a sign that your faith is absent. Instead, they view these questions and doubts that arise because of the suffering we experience in life as an indicator we do have faith. And so a big part of what it means to live a life of faith is we wrestle with these questions and what's the connection between suffering and living a life of faith. I like uh, what a guy named Thomas Merton writes about this, what he has to say uh, about this. Uh, most of the time when I use quotes, they're not very long. Today's quote is really long. So you might want to pull out your camera and take a picture of it, or you can uh, listen to the podcast or watch this sermon on YouTube later. And uh, last couple of weeks ago, we talked about ruminating. on the, These are some thoughts you're going to have to think about. Uh, but they're super important, and so I wanted to make sure we read it all together. I, I'm going to read through this, and what I'd like you, as you're listening to what I'm reading, also allow your mind to wander to times in your life when you or the people you love have been in a season of suffering, is this perhaps a description of what it's like when we're in that season? But when the time comes to enter the darkness in which we are naked and helpless and alone, in which we see the insufficiency of our greatest strengths and the hollowness of our strongest virtues, in which we have nothing of our own to rely on and nothing in our nature to support us, and nothing in the world to guide us or give us light, then we find out whether or not we live by faith. This seems to me to be Thomas Merton's description of helplessness. What's the worst sin anyone can commit? In this part of the world, helplessness is right up there. Oh, we hate it when people are helpless. Like we, we train ourselves. We train our kids. We're going to give you the life skills that you need. We're going to help you become strong so that you will never be helpless, so that you can face and overcome anything that comes your way. But inevitably, something comes our way that leaves us helpless and naked and alone and in the dark and weak. And Merton says, this is one of the things suffering does in our lives, it, it leads us to a tipping point. When we get to this kind of place, in, in the face of the suffering that we all will go through at some point in our life, the tipping point is, will I be strong enough, humble enough to acknowledge my helplessness? That I can't do it. I can't change it. I, can't, I need help. The last song that we were singing, uh, <laughs> It's called Abide, and I've told our worship leaders, can we stop singing that song? I don't like that song. I know we're, we're not supposed to complain about songs and stuff, but just keep it between. <laughs> but I told them, okay, we can keep singing it because remember what we sing at the end of it, just over and over and over on repeat? I depend on you. I depend on you. I depend on you. And the truth is most of us don't. We depend on ourselves and our abilities and our strengths and our, our capabilities. But people 
there will come a time in your life, and some of you have already walked through this valley, where all you have is your dependency on God. So it's good news. It's good news that God sends us Jesus. Not because Jesus is going to remove our suffering, but it shows God sees us. He sees our suffering, and God says, I'm not going to leave you alone in that. I, I will enter into the pain of your suffering with you. And, and there are plenty of times when we're in this dark and helpless place where we have these questions and, and these doubts. I don't feel God with me. Uh, where'd God go? When we're in that kind of place, look to the cross and remember at just the right time when we were utterly helpless, Christ came. God sends us Jesus for our sins. The police officer in that scene says to Lee Chandler, you made some mistakes, horrible mistakes. We're not going to crucify you. Can you imagine God saying something similar to you? You made some mistakes. You messed up. You sinned. But I'm not going to crucify you. Instead, God says, I'm going to crucify myself. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to suffer and die so that you can know, so that you can trust in my love for you. God sends us Jesus for our sin. A little Scott in his bed on the farmhouse outside of New Providence, Iowa, sees this pattern, this cycle. The people sin, they turn from God, and, and life gets awful, but then they cry out to God for help, and God sends a deliverer. God sends a rescuer. Pastor Scott, standing before you today, at Lutheran Church of Hope Ankeny says, God sends us Jesus to break that cycle once and for all. Because Jesus flips everything on its head. Uh, you, you think you are blessed because you're healthy and wealthy. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Jesus says, you're blessed when you're mourned. You're blessed when you're suffering. Because it's in those places that you experience the comfort that only God can give. While you think about that, I want to show you one more scene from this movie, Manchester by the Sea. Uh, the grief and the loss and the guilt and the shame has just devastated uh, Lee Chandler. But when he gets the phone call that his brother has died, it actually starts to draw him out of this self-imposed prison of isolation he's been living in. He starts to think about his 16-year-old nephew, the little kid he was fishing with at the beginning. He's now a 16-year-old teenage high schooler, and he's going through his own season of suffering because his dad has died. And Lee starts to think, how can I help Patrick? How can I set him up for success? How can I give him a future and a hope? Take a look. I'm gonna get some ice cream. Go ahead. Can I have some money? Yes. When am I supposed to move in with Georgie? July. I don't even have a place to live yet. 
They don't give you an apartment? Yeah, but I'm looking for one with an extra room. A room for a pull-out sofa or... What for? So you can come visit sometime. Or if you want to look at colleges in Boston, you can stay overnight. I'm not going to college. Is to talk about this now? No. idea what that opera singer was singing so I looked it up and she was singing I depend on you just kidding <laughs> I, I sent the clip to um, the production team and I labeled it a glimmer of hope because there's something about that clip that uh, makes me think there's hope for Lee Chandler despite the suffering he's experienced in his life but 90% of the reason I wanted to end my sermon with that clip is because nothing happens in it. And my hope was your mind might wander and you might think about and reflect on what it is that you believe. What is your theology? Who's God to you? What does God do to you and to others? Does God send suffering for sin? Or does God send good things like God's son, to sinners like you and me. I don't know what questions and doubts brought you to worship today. I don't know what suffering you've experienced, and maybe you're in a season of suffering right now. I do know this. God hears his children when they cry for help. And more than hearing, God acts. God helps, God sends Jesus. So let's stand together, and as we sing this last song, permission granted for this to be a time for you to pray, to cry out to God for the help that you need, cry out to God for the Jesus you need.